Acts 23. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. I didn't turn this on, didn't I? Yes. And I just walked out of the picture. Thus the band of brothers, the most foolish and soon to be the hungriest band of brothers in all of Jerusalem was formed. And I've always kind of wondered what became, from, became of these guys, this band of 40 who swore they would never eat till uh, they had killed Paul. Um, wondered if they eventually broke their oath or, and snuck off to eat some crow, or if they just starved to death because, spoiler alert, these idiots no doubt thought they would be eating again in time for the brunch buffet at the Royal Fork that they never did kill Paul. Curses spoiled again. The 23rd chapter of Acts here, which we're, where we're at in our study of the book of Acts, kind of reads like the outline of a good suspense novel, a political thriller, the diabolical plots, violence, political intrigue, conspiracies, disputes among religious power players, supernatural visitations, unexpected rescues in the night, armies on the move, vows of vengeance, secret spies, clandestine messengers. And you can't make up a better story than this. And that's just in one chapter. So what does it all mean? What does it all point to? All this plotting, scheming, drama, and intrigue involving the most educated and politically connected people in the, in the Middle East at the time. All of it centered around one man, a disgraced Pharisee, and teacher of some new sect of Judaism that primarily the downtrodden and ignorant were drawn to. It means that the powerful and connected can scheme and plan all they want. The Lord still determines the outcome. He is still in control. In this case, he uses the schemes of evil men to destroy the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, to accomplish his and Paul's goal of preaching Jesus and the Lord of the capital city itself. So Jesus is using all this to get his purpose done, all this evil scheming. And as Snidely Whiplash used to say, whenever Dudley Doolwright would save Farinell from his evil scheming, you can almost hear the proclaiming, the enemy proclaiming over and over again in this story, curses spoiled again. I used to watch that cartoon when I was a kid in Minnesota because part of the Bullwinkle show, and Bullwinkle, of course, was from Minnesota. So he was a local hero. Lived in Gooseberry Falls. I don't think that place exists, but pretty sure it's up by International Falls. If it did, coldest place in the country, literally. It's right behind West Yellowstone. Why do I live in two of the most coldest places in the country? So old tonight he was pretty hapless in his, that was an extra, you're welcome. <laughs> in case you ever want to go visit Bullwinkle. So old tonight he was pretty hapless here in his irrational need to always be tying up innocent women and leaving them on railroad tracks or sawmills or whatever. But then after reading through this chapter, if you had a chance, it would seem that the devil is pretty hapless also. At least when he comes up against the Lord and those who are following in his plan. And again, the verse that played so prominently last week, as we talked about standing against the evil schemes of those who would bring this country and the church down, comes to mind. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Unless it's in the computer. In every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. 
This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and her righteousness is from me, says the Lord, Isaiah 54, 17. There it is. That's not it. Maybe I didn't put it up there. I need a different PowerPoint person. But wait, that's me. Anyways, we'll get to that one eventually. You could call this, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. You could call that the snidely whiplash verse. Curses swirled again. So Paul has been brought up for a council made up of religious big shots, the dreaded Sanhedrin, I suppose, as he's come to face his accusers. After being accused of desecrating the temple and subverting the law of Moses, chapter 22, he's already gotten to preach Jesus to hundreds of Jews, thanks to an intervention by a detachment of Roman soldiers who rescued him from this mob that was trying to, trying to beat him to death. And he now gets to defend Jesus before the Pharisees, priests, and Sadducees as the Romans, to whom Paul had appealed as a citizen of Rome, are trying to discover just what it is that has these Jews so riled up against this seemingly harmless Jew named Paul. But Paul, he's pretty feisty. He has a razor-sharp wit, and he's not shy in any way, shape, or form. And the high priest Ananias, oh, look, there's Dudley. I really got this out of whack. Oh, there's the verse we're looking for. Okay, now we're back on track. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And I love this, because lest you think Paul is a pushover, he gets smacked in the mouth by the bailiff, and he calls the judge out for acting contrary to the law and ordering him to be struck, because he claimed to be guiltless before God. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. So again, Paul's standing up for his rights, this time his rights as a Jew, just as he did the day before as a Roman. And when he's told that the one who ordered him to be struck, Ananias, is a high priest, he humbly apologizes for dishonoring the office of the high priest against the commands of God. Now it seems unlikely to me that Paul wouldn't know that who that high priest is here, but when he's confronted with the facts, he perhaps realizes that he's crossed the line. Or he's realized that cursing the judge isn't, isn't a good strategy, isn't going to help his case. It's generally never a good idea. Or it may be that Paul was so caught off guard by this lawless and seem, unseemly behavior from the chief justice of this Jewish Supreme Court that he forgets for a moment where he is. As we, it seems, as we've so painfully learned in our own nation, that no matter the laws and the principles binding an institution, even one charged with preserving and interpreting those laws and principles, that the integrity of anybody or office is only as strong as the character of the people holding the position. And so Paul, after apologizing for cursing the high priest, and now understanding the room a little better, he cleverly turns this hearing into a brawl between the council members themselves by playing them against one another. And he does this by subtly highlighting their theological differences, pitting the Pharisees against the Sadducees, and leaving the priests frustrated at having lost control of their proceedings, which they want to keep focused on demonizing Paul. Paul says, Men and brother, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, 
for which I am being judged. And when he said this, a dissension arose amongst the Pharisees, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So he stands up and says, I'm being judged, I'm being accused of things concerning the resurrection from the dead, which he was, because he was proclaiming Jesus was resurrected. But the way he words it, this causes a dispute amongst the scribes and the Pharisees, because the scribes, or the Sadducees, because they don't believe in a resurrection or a spirit. And the Pharisees, of course, do, and so there's this big to-do. Well, maybe Paul is sent here by a spirit. Maybe somebody was resurrected. So they start arguing amongst themselves instead of trying Paul like they're supposed to be doing. So this court has no integrity whatsoever. And this becomes evident when suddenly their own pride and the need to be right is the most important thing. And Paul just becomes a pawn to be used or destroyed. Whatever suits their purpose and fits their narrative. And this dispute becomes so violent, one side arguing that Paul is right, there is a resurrection, thus maybe he was sent by an angel or a spirit, while the other, believing in neither, that they literally begin to have a tug of war with Paul. And the Romans, fearing that they may tear him apart, forcibly take him away from this esteemed and holy council. No doubt they're still screaming at each other long after Paul has been removed. Like, wait, where did Paul go? Curses foiled again. What a sad testimony for a court that's supposed to represent God and dispense test justice to God's people. But we shouldn't be surprised. This is the same court that determined that Jesus was a danger to society who needed to be dragged out of the city and crucified. Of course, that plan backfired horribly also, as the schemes of evil men usually do. And that's why Paul is standing before them now. Because Jesus was resurrected, their attempt to destroy Jesus had failed. But evil is stupid, no matter the sophistication or the sharpness of the creases in their clothes. And they soon lose all control of the situation, handed to them on a silver platter. They had Paul, and they blew it. Let's read more from this story. Find Acts 23, if you have it now. So we're going to take up where the, the band of boneheads takes over, where the Sanhedrin fails in their attempt to destroy Paul. This is a very annoying man who insists on talking about Jesus everywhere he goes. You remember who's really wanting Paul gone here? It's Satan himself, the same one who destroyed, tried to destroy Jesus by inciting Judas and the religious leaders and then the Romans against him. So the enemy must be so frustrated here as, as Paul keeps slipping away and foiling his efforts, always just as it seems like a sure thing. The sad, heart-rending pleas earlier of those who didn't want to, who loved Paul, didn't want him to go to Jerusalem because they knew he was going to get in trouble. That failed. The angry mob of mostly peaceful protesters who failed to kill him, that, that plan was foiled. The Roman riot police who rushed to finish him off, that plan was foiled. The high court failed to convict him or even charge him with anything. So now he's like, I know, let's get a bunch of thugs of righteous indignation, full of righteous indignation, to ambush him. Well, the thing about schemes inspired by demonic higher powers is they draw the attention of and are easily foiled by the highest power, the one who foiled and overcame the greatest evil scheme of all, murdering the Son of God, the Lord himself. Jesus is all over this now. And knowing this, as we're reading this, that there's a battle happening on a higher plane is what makes this so interesting and encouraging to us as we look to our own world and learn to recognize the hand of God 
as he makes the sophisticated and powerful of our own generation look like complete and total fools in their efforts to subvert God's laws and his people. The mockers are becoming a mockery of the wisdom they claim to have cornered the market on. We'll pick it up in verse 10. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bowed themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing till we have killed Paul. Aren't we noble? Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you are going to make a further inquiry concerning him. But we're ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son, in other words, nephew, heard of the ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one what you, that you've told me these things, what you, that, that you reveal these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen, and go to Caesarea the third hour of the night, and provide mouths to set Paul on, and bring him safety to, safely to Felix the governor. We'll stop there. Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, two hundred spearmen, to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. How's that for an escort? The Romans aren't messing around here. The word of one little boy, with a message of overheard whispers in the night, thwarted yet another scheme to destroy the apostle and his message, and sets all this in motion. Curses foiled again. Or as the scripture says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. So why would this captain care so much about one Jew as to go through all this trouble? So tell me Jesus isn't involved here. Well, wait, we know he is because he had come to Paul the night before, right after his Supreme Court debacle, and said so. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. <coughs> I have to believe that Paul saw the humor in all of this, as bold and confident as he is in his Lord. <coughs> how Jesus just keeps tweaking the enemy on his behalf and on behalf of the gospel. And as long as we're on this cartoon theme, it all kind of reminds me of the roadrunner here. <laughs> Wiley Coyote always had some genius scheme to capture the roadrunner, who was always outrunning him, and every one of his brilliant schemes would always end up backfiring and ending up in him either being flattened or blown to smithereens by his own 
his own traps. Eventually, the roadrunner just kind of stopped worrying about the coyote a whole lot and just kept doing what he loved to do, running. Meep, meep. As a kid, we moved to Albuquerque. I was so disappointed when I saw a real roadrunner. It's only this tall. <laughs> I thought they were like this, you know. <laughs> Anyways, they are pretty cool. Roadrunner, coyotes after you. How can we never sing that? <laughs> That's okay. We don't even sing. <laughs> I could do something with that. That's right up my alley when I was a kid's pastor. <laughs> Roadrunner, the enemy's after you. Anyways, back to regular schedule program. Paul had no doubt probably never seen Looney Tunes, so he didn't know who Roadrunner was either, but I'm sure he saw the humor in this, and he had to have seen the irony being rescued by the very same Romans that had crucified his Lord, proving even further how God is sovereign in all things, no matter who appears to be in control. It wasn't God's purpose for him to die in Jerusalem this day. It had been his purpose for Jesus to die in Jerusalem that day a few years earlier. And these could very well have been the same centurions who had scourged and crucified Jesus after he was accused by the very same Jews for almost the same accusations, going against their understanding of God's law and threatening their stranglehold on the religious lives of the nation of Israel, not to mention their tithe money. And he goes up before the same court. Of course, what we, as we talked about last week, one of the big differences and why Paul was spared some of the abuse by the Romans is because he asserted his rights as a Roman citizen to be treated justly and to be heard. But things could have still gone south very quickly. For as we know, we may have rights, but we don't always get to, to exercise them, depending on who's in charge that day. Paul asserted his rights, and the Lord was on his side, and he, he gets treated justly by these Romans. He may have been a citizen of Rome, but he was also a Jew first. And his own countrymen weren't giving him a fair shake, and this is what's so disturbing him in all this, at least not the ones with the loudest voices and the most power. Unfortunately, this Roman soldier was a man of honor. He's a long ways from Rome, he didn't have to treat Paul fairly. He didn't have to take care of Paul. Just another casualty of war, whatever. But God used this soldier's sense of duty to his country and his countrymen to accomplish his purpose. Paul's fate was in the hand of the Lord, just as his Lord's fate was in the hand of his father. Too bad, so sad, you hangry bunch of boneheads. It made sense, and I wrote it. hope it made sense to you. So speaking of a soldier's sense of honor, keep praying for our brave men and women, many of them ex-military, who are working to rescue our fellow Americans in Afghanistan, deserted and betrayed by the loudest and most powerful of our nation. It's an evil that must not be forgotten. It must be answered for and will, if not in this life, the next. And pray for our brave soldiers active duty who were there who will be tormented for the rest of their lives, no doubt by the memories of those they were forced to leave behind, by their commanders knowing in their own hearts that it was wrong, very wrong, left behind to suffer unimaginable horrors at the hands of evil men who justify all up in the name of a false god. And perhaps the greatest evil of all is that those who orchestrated their being left behind 
are still doing all they can to frustrate the efforts of those who are still trying to get them out. And that our once free press is willingly covering for them all. But I guess that shouldn't be a big surprise if this is the same cabal that left our folks behind at Benghazi to die at the hand of savages. And yes, I just said all that. Because this has gotten totally out of hand. Evil must be called evil. And good people must not remain silent. When our leaders become whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Just as Jesus and our Lord did. Paul, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit and judge me according to law, yet you command me struck contrary to the law. Very similar to what Jesus said to the same people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they're full of the bones of dead and all kinds of filth. The office must be respected which is what our brave soldiers did, to their credit, when they obeyed the owners, orders of the commander-in-chief of the nation they're sworn to protect and serve. But evil must be called out, and truth must be spoken. It's what President Reagan did with the Soviet Union when he called them an evil empire, ultimately ending the Cold War and calling them out for the Berlin Wall, which ultimately came down. And that's what Paul is doing here in Jerusalem. Because of that, because of his faith in his Lord, his prayers and his courage in following his Lord, even in the face of the fire, the Lord has stood by him. And he wins a day. And the gospel would win the hearts of the world. If Paul had caved, we wouldn't be here today. Someone else may have got the word out, but think about it. Paul wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. We'd be sorely lacking. And records this letter by this commander to the governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. So the Lord uses this commander, pagan, more than likely, but an honorable soldier because he was willing Sometimes the Lord uses the willing, whether they know it or him or not, to care for his own and accomplish his purposes. So pray that those rescuing our brothers and sisters will be given God's strength and protection, and that more of us will be willing to stand up for the abandoned and afflicted. Whether they be our fellow countrymen by virtue of a shared heritage of our country, or through our Lord. Because Christians are being hunted and slaughtered as we speak, and enslaved in Afghanistan and elsewhere. So, Lord, send in the troops, send in the pure and hard to serve you, the honorable who are close to knowing you, and the armies of heaven. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Because ultimately, the battle belongs to the Lord. But we have to be willing to engage. We need leaders and prophets who are not afraid, who recognize the battles taking place. If those in the pulpits aren't calling out evil, how will the prayer warriors, whose prayers affect and strengthen these battles, the heavenly warriors, how will they know where to direct their prayers? It's courage, boldness, prayer in the hand of the Lord that will turn this nation back from the course of destruction it's on. And that rallying cry I told you we needed last week has to be heard coming from the pulpits. The lack of that is why we're in the straits we're in. 
It has to come from those who are called to feed God's sheep and to equip his saints. A bunch of soldiers, God's army, no matter how dedicated, running around in different directions with no battle plan or leadership, that's not an army. At best, it's a bunch of lone rangers who affect very little, and at worst, it's a mob that eventually forgets who and why they're fighting, let alone who for, and drops their weapons and runs for the caves and the hills. We fight for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. No weapon formed against us will prosper. No terror that comes by night or arrow that flies by day will cause us to fear or run away defeated. You come to us with lies or deceit or even spear and javelin, but we come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whose name and whose armies you have defiled, and God will not be mocked. Paul knew this, but even long before Paul, the young shepherd boy who spoke those words and would become king knew this. He faced a seemingly unbeatable champion, a giant named Goliath, with an entire army behind him. Goliath had. The whole army of Israel was shaken in their boots. This shepherd boy named David comes along and says to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord is not saved by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. We fight on a higher plane. We are in a battle, and the fighting can be fierce. It was pretty graphic. The battle was very real. But David knew ultimately where his strength came from and where the battle was really being fought. He was just doing his part here on earth. If we realize and engage our enemies on the higher plane, where the real battles are, where the commanders of the opposing forces are, we will have the victory. It takes a lot of prayer, a little bit of faith, and a willingness to engage. Paul didn't cower, David didn't cower, and our Lord certainly didn't cower. And when the Philistines drew near to meet David, we can beat this punk. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead. And he fell face down on the ground. Can't tell me a little stone, I don't know, maybe that big around, in a sling, is going to sink into the forehead of a giant. I mean, sure, you can get some speed going on those things. But I don't think it was skill, luck, or the stone that killed Goliath. It was David's willingness to use what he had on hand and to trust in the righteousness of his cause and in his God. It was a lifestyle of prayer and worship. David fighting on a higher plane. Though diminutive in size and derided as weak and foolish, would be and remains bigger than life. Because he knew he could not lose. We face a defeated foe. He's just too dumb to know it. And we have the Lord standing with us. 
Let's not be too dumb to see it. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Spent the whole time worshiping there, debating what I should say when I get back up here. <laughs> I don't like having to preach messages like this. But has to be done. I read a story the other day. I'm probably not going to tell it right, but got the gist of it. College class got together political science class or something, I don't remember what it was. And first class of the season, and teacher come in and points to a young man sitting in the front row and says, what's your name? And he says, Spencer Johansson. And she, teacher looks at him, points his finger at him and says, get out of my class. Pick up all your stuff and get out of here and don't ever come back. And the guy's mouth drops open and says, whoa, 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 what? He says, get out of here. Not another word. This guy picks up all the stuff and leaves and everybody else sits there in stunned silence. He says, anybody else have anything to say? And nobody says anything. And he says a few things, and he starts asking, do you think I was treating that, that young man unfairly? Nobody says anything, so he calls somebody out. about you? Do you think I was right in asking that young man to leave? And the guy says, no, points to another gal. How about you? Well, no, it doesn't seem right to me. And he says, who, does, who thinks it doesn't seem right? And everybody raised their hands. And he says, well, why didn't anybody speak up? And somebody timidly says, well, we didn't want to get kicked out of the class. And the guy says, well, that guy I threw out of here is actually the teacher. He comes back in and takes over the class. He says, don't ever be afraid to speak up when you see injustice. That's kind of where we're at. I was watching the news this morning, and... Uh, one of the, there's a captain, I want to say he's a captain, in the armed forces of this great country who is now in the brig because he made a video on YouTube challenging the commanders of the U.S. Army, the generals, why didn't anybody speak up? Why didn't somebody go in and throw their, throw their insignias down on the desk and say, I can't be a part of this? when the debacle in Afghanistan was happening, when the, the bad decisions were being made, that were obviously bad, anybody with any experience in common sense. And he got thrown in a brig, and he hasn't been charged yet. He's just being held. And apparently they had somebody talked to his father, and his father said he had anticipated when he did that that other people would join in, other people in the service, and, and speak up as well. But nobody has. If enough people speak up, they can't get away with this stuff. That's how we give you lots of examples in history. Everybody wonders how Nazi Germany got the place it was. Little by little, we've all heard the saying. First it was so-and-so, and I didn't speak up. Then it was so-and-so, and I didn't speak up because it wasn't me. Then it was this group, and I didn't speak up because it wasn't me. And then it was me, and there was no one left to speak up. It's, it's not too late. And uh, I said last week, we need to keep fighting for this nation because I think this nation has been blessed 
to be a beacon and a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world and a refuge. And if we're gone, what is there? But it's not just enough to speak up. It's not just about being political and getting in people's faces. Paul only did what he had to do. He willingly faced trouble, but he did it confidently and was careful with his words. He lost his temper a little bit here in today's story. You whitewashed wall. But that was the same thing Jesus did. There is a time to get angry. But it has to be spirit-led, and it has to be at the right time and the right place, and ultimately the Lord has to be behind all that we do because that's how many times we see throughout Scripture. That's why I went over the story of David and Goliath. The battle is ultimately the Lord's. All we got is little stones. Yeah, we might do some damage, but... 99% 99% of the time, that little stone isn't going to take out a giant unless it's being directed by the Lord of hosts. So just carry your rocks around. Make sure you're prayed up. And I think that's, I think that's the challenge for the church this day. Not just this church, but the church in whole, as a whole. We need to be praying more. Praying for this nation. Praying for our leaders. Praying for the church. Praying for our pastors praying for each other because that's where the battles really are we fight on a higher plane speaking of prayer let's do that Heavenly Father we thank you again for the opportunity to come together and and to worship you in freedom and in truth and spirit Lord let us never take that privilege for granted and uh, never take that lightly and uh, to exercise that privilege whenever we can, not just here, but make it a lifestyle. Because it's not a right that's granted to us by man. It's a duty and a call, and the privilege that comes from you. Lord, we pray for this nation. We pray for this world that you'd pour out your wisdom and on our leaders that you would reveal truth to them, reveal yourself to them, Lord, and that, that evil would be revealed, the, the schemes of the evil would be foiled. And uh, again and again as we saw happen in today's stories that evil schemes would be undone and not just undone but used to further your kingdom to give you glory to advance advance your message Lord help us to take our little parts and, and guide our steps by your spirit Lord none of the players in this story you know the soldier the, the boy who just heard a, heard a conspiracy and all these little things that seem insignificant, they all come together and just faithful to do their part when opportunity arises. Give us the courage to speak up when we need to speak up and the wisdom to be silent when we need to be silent and to do all these things, Lord, as, as you always did and you taught us over and over again in love. Let us be people that are known, not just bold and courageous, people of truth, but people of love. So that if anyone has anything against us, it's not because of anything we deserved. It's only because of who we are. Prince and princesses of the king. Ambassadors of the most high God. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Help us to go forth in your power, in your strength, to make a difference in this world, Lord. And indeed, pour out your spirit. To bring repentance to hearts that need repenting. Show us where we need to to turn away from things and always turn 
turn to you. Turn our this nation to you. Protect our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and around the world where they're being hunted, persecuted, abused in horrible ways. Give them strength. Give them protection. Blind the eyes of those who are looking for them so they can't see them. And strengthen the hands of those who are there to help them. We pray all these things. In the name of the King of the Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Amen.